Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. One of the most enduring problems we have faced throughout human history is tribalism. From the Nazis to the Rwandan genocide, we've repeatedly seen the devastating results of groupthink and dehumanizing outsiders. Although some Christian groups have tragically fallen into this sin, we don't have to. Christianity provides a better way. We can draw upon our roots in Scripture to live out a faith that recognizes insiders from outsiders while simultaneously inviting outsiders to become insiders. Rather than excluding and shunning those who are different, we are called to love them and invite them in. Here now is episode 399, Why Christianity Part 12, Inclusiveness. I want to start by talking about tribalism, this us versus them mentality that we see rampant throughout our world and has been throughout our world. And I want to define tribalism as the loss of the ability for you to, to look at outsiders charitably, where, where you're no longer able to say, oh, I can see where they're coming from. But instead you say, how could you ever believe or live or do that? That's the tribalism. Of course, we saw it in the 1930s and 40s with the Nazis, uh, very, very s- severe form of tribalism there where they... Uh, drew upon the work of Charles Darwin to develop the theory of the Aryan race that was superior to all others and then promptly acted on that ideology, killing six million Jews and millions of gypsies and homosexuals and others that didn't fit the mold, the stereotype that they developed. Or the Rwandan genocide in 1994 between the Hutus and the Tutsis, where in 100 days between 500,000 and a million of the Tutsis were killed, uh, where neighbor literally took machete to neighbor. So tribalism is a problem. And it's not, it's not something that just happens in, among white people or black people or Asian people. You know, it, it's just sort of built into the human condition and we, we all struggle with it. But it's not just something that relates to race. It also has to do with religion. Here's a recent example. March 15, 2019, in Christchurch, New Zealand, an Australian man murdered 50 Muslims while they were praying, injuring 50 more. Allegedly, he was enraged by Islamic extremists in 2016 and 2017, attacks that occurred then. These are the, the more violent examples of tribalism. We have other forms of tribalism as well. Social justice warriors on campus attacked this administrator uh, in October 2015 at Claremont McKenna College near Los Angeles, a a student of Mexican descent wrote an essay about her feelings of marginalization on the campus, that she felt she didn't fit into the the mold of a typical student on campus. She sent this email to the staff, at which point Mary Spellman wrote an email back (laughs) empathizing with her, but in her attempt to empathize with her and, and, and show her that she heard her, uh, she used 
uh, some, some phrase that was not considered to be acceptable. And so in an, in an effort to fight racism, they turned against her. And there were marches and demonstrations and demands for Spellman to, to resign. And two students committed to a full hunger strike, saying that they wouldn't eat until Spellman was gone, the, the dean of students, at which point she resigned. Uh, so what was that? I mean, how, how did this coalesce so quickly? Well, you had social media. The, the student posted the response email, which was a private email, on her Facebook. And then everybody saw it and saw the particular angle in which she was reading the response. And then you had that tribal coalescing until there was these, these demonstrations. Or another example is uh, around the same time at Yale University, Someone named Erica Christakis, a lecturer at Yale, wrote an email about Halloween costumes. I mean, you can get in trouble for all kinds of things these days. Uh, she felt that the, the school should not police or restrict Halloween costumes, that the students should be able to figure this out on their own. They're adults, they're at college. And if they're offended by somebody else wearing a costume, they should be able to talk to each other and figure it out. Uh, this email so infuriated the students at Yale, that 150 of them marched to Christakis' home, wrote uh, with chalk in front of her house, and her husband, pictured here, Nicholas Christakis, came out. Uh, when he came out, they verbally assaulted him and cursed at him and told him that his wife was a racist and offensive. A video of this went viral, and after this, both uh, husband and wife resigned again from campus. But, of course, it's not just limited to social, social justice warriors, right? We have tribalism in politics. We have tribalism in sports. Uh, we have tribalism in social issues, right? Where you, I mean, we could just gather 100 people from the capital region at random and say, all right, I want you to discuss abortion. You see what happens. Uh, discuss the death penalty. Should we, should we keep it? Should we get rid of it? Discuss gay marriage or transgender bathroom laws, and, and we've got automatically people taking sides. And disagreement is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the inability to in any way see the other as still somehow respectable or reasonable or worth interacting with. That's what I mean by tribalism. So this is a, this is a major issue in our culture, in our society, throughout human history. It has uh, led to genocide. The way genocide works is you stop looking at the other as a human. And the moment that person is no longer a human, you can kill it. So in Rwanda, the Tutsis were not humans, they were cockroaches. Right? The Nazis, they didn't look at the Jews as humans. They looked at them as less evolved semi-humans. This is serious stuff, and we, we do well to engage with it because it is a major problem in our society. And I really... I'm at a loss to know of any other system or worldview or faith that does anything near as good a job or has anywhere near as good a track record as Christianity does when it comes to this issue, especially race, but on other issues as well. When we look at the Bible itself, we find in the Old Testament several glimpses or foreshadowings of God's heart for people outside of Israel, non-Jewish people. Uh, so we have the example of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He's not a descendant of Abraham, and yet 
he is uh, somewhat included in things. Uh, Rahab is uh, from Jericho. She's a Canaanite. She's supposed to be annihilated with the city. And because of her faith, uh, she is not only welcomed into the Israelite nation, but she is ultimately an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Then you have Ruth, uh, a Moabite woman, who once again is welcomed into the community as a, as a foreign woman. Or Jonah, who doesn't really want to go on the mission God sends him, but God's mission is to send him to these Ninevites, these, uh, this very powerful city that is a constant threat to Israel. And yet, the, the end of the book of Jonah says, you know, should, shouldn't I care about all these 100,000 plus people that don't know what they're doing? So uh, we do see some inclusive, even in the most exclusive part of the Bible, the Old Testament, where God is in a covenant relationship with just Israel, there's still inclusiveness there. Uh, once God fulfills his purpose in Israel through the production and life and ministry and death and resurrection of the Messiah, we have a real opening of things to uh, everybody. So first up, we have Philip, if we're looking through the book of Acts, for example, with the Samaritans. I mean, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Hated the, They wouldn't even call them Samaritans. They called them Kuthians. It's just like a slang term to, to insult their ethnic identity, you know, their, their ancestry. Like, uh, you're, you're half-breeds. You're not even really... We don't even recognize you as related to us in any way. Whereas the Samaritans claimed that they were from Manasseh and Ephraim, these other tribes... The Jews couldn't show him any kind of charity on that. Philip, the evangelist, did not have a hang-up about the Samaritans. He's, he's an early Christian, first-generation Christian. He goes up there. There's persecution. It's getting too hot in Jerusalem for Christians. So he goes right up to Samaria, and he preaches, and he preaches them the same gospel that he would preach to a Jew. And they believe, and everyone's like, the Samaritans believed. <laughs> Can you believe it? And uh, so they send for the apostles. Go check this out. Go check this out. See what's going on up there. So they go to Samaria, and then they lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And they're like, well, I guess God's accepted them. What are we going to do? If God's accepted them, I, I, you know, who am I to stand in the way? And so the faith spreads from the Jews to the Samaritans. But Philip doesn't stop there, right? Philip goes to the God sends him to the Ethiopian treasurer, uh, who, so far as we know, has no Jewish blood. Typically, Ethiopians don't. And uh, he's, he's there, and he uh, runs up to the chariot, and the Ethiopian just happens to be reading not only the Bible, but Isaiah the prophet. Not only Isaiah the prophet, but Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song, which is one of the clearest prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament about his suffering. And Philip uses the best one-liner, highly recommended. Do you understand what you're reading? That's all he said. And the guy's like, come on up here. Why don't you explain it to me? How can I unless somebody explains it to me? And boom, what do you know? We've got an African in the first generation of Christianity. He goes back home. After him, we have Peter and Cornelius. And you remember that account where Peter is up on his roof and he has these visions and there's a sheet with all these unclean animals and a voice says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, Lord, I would never do that. I'm kosher. You're like, come on, I, I'm not going to eat bacon. Um, I don't even think they, who knows if they even had a word for bacon. But, uh, you know, they're these, of these unclean animals. And he sees that vision three times. And then God says, some, there's some people downstairs, go with them. And, it, and it's some representative of Cornelius. Not only is Cornelius a Gentile, but he's a Roman soldier. 
I mean, if there's anyone the Jews hated more than the Samaritans, it was the Romans. Why? Because the Romans had conquered them, had oppressed them, had taxed them, had control over the high priest's vestments even, his, his high priestly garments, the Romans stored and controlled. I mean, it was just, they were chafing under Roman control. And there was always rebellion just bubbling right beneath the surface throughout uh, the, the first century. Before the time of Christ, in the year 6, Judah the Galilean rose up against the Romans. And there were many others. And then during the time of Jesus, there, there are people whispering and talking like, how do we get rid of these Romans? You know, they asked Jesus a stumper question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we, Jesus? Because it was a polarizing issue. That's why they asked him that question. It was to undermine him. And then we know that, of course, uh, 30 years after Christ, there was the first great Jewish war against the Roman Empire. And then a century later, another whole war against the Roman Empire. So we know the Jews didn't like Romans. Peter's a Jew. Cornelius is a Roman. Not just a Roman, but a Roman soldier. Not a Roman soldier, but a commander, the centurion. And he goes to his house because God tells him to go and Peter's obedient. He gets to his house, Cornelius tells him the whole story about the angel and and all this information about how he was told to send for Peter. Peter just lets it rip. He opens his mouth, he starts preaching. The Spirit falls upon them, is poured out upon them. They all start speaking in tongues. Peter's like, what am I going to do? God's accepted him. He gets called on the carpet later, and this is just a a little statement from Acts 11.17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What was he going to do? Like, hey, shh, 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 don't you speak in tongues. <laughs> Who's going to stand in God's way? No, he welcomed him into the family. I guess Gentiles are allowed to be part of the faith. And then the real exciting stuff happens in Antioch because the Ethiopian, he goes back to Ethiopia. Cornelius has his household, but he's, he's staying at his household. He's up there in Caesarea, you know, so Antioch, that's really where a lot of the action happens. So please take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 11. Um, I'll have it on the screen as well, but I just want to read to you a little bit about the church at Antioch because this is the place where Christianity faced the race issue and overcame it, and that was 20 centuries ago. So I think this is really exciting for us today since this issue is once again in our our society and people are worried about it. So Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, that's the Greek people, preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, Barnabas was, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's where we got our name. This church, in this part of the world, 
not in the region of Israel, north of everything else, in Antioch, that's where we were called Christians, which was probably some sort of way to make fun of us, so don't get too excited about it. But uh, my point is, this is where it happens. This is where People are like, well, let's, let's, talk, let's tell the same message about Jesus that we're telling all the Jews. Let's tell it to the Greeks and see what happens. And they do, and they believe. And so they send down, once again, they send down to Jerusalem to headquarters, right, and say, hey, we got all these people here that aren't Jewish, and they believe. Like, how, is, that, is that okay? You know, what's, what, what do we think about that? Barnabas goes up. Oh, he sees, he's just like, this is it, man. He, it says that... Um, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He's like, these are my people. These are my people. This is, this is Christian inclusiveness. This is saying, look, I know we, we differ culturally, linguistically, ethnically, but you are my people because you believe in Jesus. It's powerful because it transcends all the identity issues and the boundaries that are in their, in their time, in our time as well. So then after this, Barnabas and Paul feel led by God, led by the Spirit, to go on a missionary journey. We have the first recorded missionary journey of someone who is going to, you know, get in a boat and go to another totally other place. They go to Cyprus, they preach for that, go up to uh, Turkey and preach all in there. And who are they preaching to? We know, we know pretty easily they preach to the synagogue, always the synagogue first, and then to the Gentiles. So they, they go and they preach to their own people, but then they also will secondarily preach to the non-Jews as well. Usually the synagogue kicks them out or beats them up anyhow, so it's not like they were doing, done any favors in that department. Then we have the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and that's where they decide that Gentiles are full Christians and they don't have to keep the law. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. They are legitimate Christians. And then after that, Paul goes on two more missionary journeys and preaches far and wide this gospel. And uh, we, we develop a lot more as far as our understanding of how God had kept this information about reaching out to the Gentiles, a mystery in ages past, but he's now revealed it. And it's this exciting new truth that, that they're living out right then and there that everybody has access. Um, I love these scriptures. We don't have time to read them, but Ephesians 2 talks about how though we were once far as Gentiles, we were far, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. And it says that he is our peace who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the hostile dividing wall between Jews and non-Jews. He's broken it down in Christ. Christ is the unifier. Or Revelation 5, 9, and 10 is this beautiful song to the Lamb because by his blood he has purchased uh, people from every tribe, nation, and language for God to be a kingdom and priests and reign upon the earth. So just beautiful scriptures that talk about this inclusiveness that Christianity has. Uh, we also know that the Romans used to ridicule us for this. For example, Celsus, an anti-Christian from about the year 177 said, it is only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. Uh, so that's, that's what we call a stereotype. We call that a stereotype. Uh, so what, what is Kelsus picking out here? He's, he's picking out stupid people, uh, slaves, women, and children. Okay, 
Uh, all of these categories have one thing in common. In their society at that time, they were low status. They had low status, especially slaves. That's the lowest status. Slaves, slaves and children were, were fairly equal. Uh, women had more status than slaves and children, obviously, but it, it still wasn't great. And so that's what we were known for. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Christianity, and it's not just Celsus, there's other accounts as well. Christianity was known as a religion for women and slaves. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, of course, there were lots of men, too. And, you know, the, the people who were wealthy enough to have an education, who ended up writing things, is how we know much of what we know as far as what survived to today. But uh, we get hints from our enemies that texts like this were really lived out in the second century and going forward. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. When it comes to your salvation, there, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. So this is a very inclusive verse. This is saying like, hey, whatever your, your situation, your status is, you're welcome to, to come to Christ and to be part of this new family that God is establishing. What, what am I saying? I'm saying we have a legacy. We have a legacy of dealing with this us versus them issue. But I don't, I don't want uh, to act as if like, we have no difference between us and the world. Christianity does have a very strong boundary marker, okay? But what's interesting about it is that it is permeable. The Christian boundary is permeable. We believe that people can come and people can go within that boundary. So uh, it is true in Scripture we have plenty of dualistic language. We have sheep and the goats. We have believers and unbelievers. We have those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. We have the righteous and the unrighteous. But the whole purpose of Christianity, according to Jesus, is, is summed up in the Great Commission, is to make disciples of all nations. Think about that for a moment. Of all nations. That's who we are. That's in the DNA of, of, of the church. Our purpose, it's, it's very rare that an organization exists for those who are not its members. Right? Like if you're in a bowling organization, you don't care about those people that are out walking their dogs. Dog walkers, you know, you care about bowlers, right? Christianity exists for those who aren't Christians, right? Our purpose is to invite them in. So this is, it is true that we, we have a sense of boundaries of like those who believe and those who don't believe, but it's not a fixed boundary. It's, it's a permeable boundary that we can welcome people into. So then the question becomes, how do we treat outsiders? How do we treat people who are not Christians? How do we deal with that? And the Bible has a lot to say about that. Jesus what does he teach us? Love your neighbor as yourself. And even more radically, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. Be like your Father who is in heaven, who sends rain on the just and the unjust. Be like that. Don't love with an imperfect love. Love with a perfect love. Love that reaches to not only those who greet you, but those who don't greet you. Uh, so that's, that's Jesus on it. But I, I really enjoy this text. First uh, Peter, actually, I found three major scriptures there that I want to read with you because uh, it's really dealing with this issue of, all right, we're being persecuted. People outside of our faith do not like us. How do we deal with them? 
in return. And that's really where it gets interesting. And that's where, where it gets hard. And that's where we, we want to focus. Because, look, if the world is writing uh, good things about you, about our faith, and saying, oh, Christians are such wonderful people. Look at the charity work they do. And look at how uh, loving they are. And yeah, okay. Nobody's going to struggle there. It, the problem is when they call us bigots and say that we are small-minded and we're narrow and we're stupid and we're hopelessly regressive, then what do we do? I think this helps us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, these are two key words for us, as sojourners and exiles. This is how Christians are to think of ourselves in the cultures and societies that we find ourselves. We are sojourners, just like Abraham was a sojourner. That is to say, we're sort of like temporary. We're waiting for our kingdom to come. Uh, we're, we're, in a sense, aliens. To abstain, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the outsiders, honorable. Isn't that interesting? Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which is going to happen, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Probably not going to glorify God today. But on the day of visitation, when all is made clear, they will glorify God for your deeds. And then he says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, so you have the emperor there, or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is, this is a really powerful stance that we are called to live in oppressive regimes. And, this, and, and look, this is, not, this is not like something that's for America. Like Our people have lived this in horrible situations, horrible persecutions in many different countries over many different years. This is who we are. You squeeze us, you push us, you beat us, you kill us, this is what we do. We, we, we conduct ourselves in an honorable manner. We subject ourselves for the Lord's sake, not because they deserve it, but for the Lord's sake, to the evil emperor or the good emperor or the evil president or the good president or the evil prime minister or the good prime minister. And of course, there's a line where we're not going to subject ourselves to that person to the degree that we sin, Right? We see that clearly in Scripture that the apostles would say, well, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God or of you, you know, we're going with God on this one. But you do subject yourself to the punishment of the court. Uh, and here's another one, 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with all gentleness and respect. I think a lot of times we come up with arguments and explanations and we're ready to beat our opponents down. Not a good strategy. <laughs> we, have to, we have to match our explanations, our arguments, whatever they are, with gentleness and respect. That's how we treat outsiders, with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I summarize that by saying, keep your nose clean. And then one last verse here, uh, or text, uh, 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, you think it's a, a strange thing that you're being persecuted? That's normal. They persecuted Jesus. 
before they persecuted Jesus, Jesus said they persecuted the prophets. This is the way it happens. This is the way the world is. It's broken. Verse 13, but rejoice. What? When I'm persecuted, I should rejoice? Jesus said that too, right? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So that's how we're supposed to treat outsiders. We're inclusive in the sense that we welcome all in. And those who choose not to come in, this is how we treat them with gentleness and respect. We have a legacy of showing outrageous cross-shaped love to those who persecute us, exclude us, beat us, imprison us, torture us, execute us. I think this is one of the things that's so great about Christianity. If you ask the question, well, why Christianity? Well, we have a solution to the race problem. We have a higher identity where we say, look, you're white and you're a child of God. You're black and you're a child of God. You're Asian and you're a child of God. You're uh, of some other descent. Whatever it is, Native American, you're a child of God. You know, welcome to the family. Those things are all secondary. You're still, you still are whatever you are, but it's just not your primary identity anymore. It's a secondary thing. Uh, your primary identity is that God loves you and sent his son to die for you so you could become his child. So that's what's so great about Christianity. You know, it doesn't matter how old or young, how thin or obese, how tall or how short, how smart or how dumb, your nationality, what race, what language you speak, your intelligence, your temperament, your history of abuse, your past acts of aggression towards others, all these different things that we slice and dice ourselves into groups based upon, your sexual attraction, your criminal record, how rich or poor you are, whether you rent or own, whether you have musical talent or not, whether you're addicted to drugs, whether you're an alcoholic, whether you watch pornography, whether you're mean and hurt people, all of those things don't matter when it comes to the invitation. Jesus says it like this. He said to all, if anyone, do you catch that? If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So if anyone will put Jesus first, will commit, will be absolutely loyal, look at it, it says, take up his cross daily. You know what a cross is? A cross is an execution device. <laughs> take up your electric chair daily. Take up your lethal injection syringe daily. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying to them every day, look, you wake up, you die. You join Christianity, it is a death. The old person dies and the new person is here. Once God and His Son begin to live in you then, through their spirit, through the spirit, right, then we begin to change. We call that sanctification, the process by which God makes us more and more like Himself. But the invitation is open. The invitation doesn't care what you've done or, or who you are or who you think you are. The invitation is there for everyone. And that's how the gospel goes out. It goes out to all people. After we accept the invitation, it's like, all right, all right, all right. Christ first. All right. Now, what did Christ say about this issue? 
Oh, now let's read what he says about that issue, and then we do what he says. And every time Jesus says, do this, and I don't want to do it, I die. I pick up my cross, and I die daily, and I do what he says instead of what I say. This is his, this is his arrangement. It's incredibly open, but incredibly strict at the same time. Uh, anybody can come in, but once they're in, you've got to put him first. He says in another place that you have to put him ahead of your parents, ahead of your spouse, ahead of your kids. That's his rule. That's not my rule. That's his rule. I would make a different rule. <laughs> I don't know what rule I would make. But that's the rule he made. So I, I, think it's, I think it's a good way to think about this issue. So thanks for your attention. That's all I have time for on this topic of inclusiveness. Well, that's it for this episode on inclusiveness. What did you think? Do you agree that Christianity has a legacy of reaching across ethnicities, races, politics, national boundaries in order to unite people in one banner under Christ? Uh, that is certainly what perspective I'm coming from. would love to hear your thoughts and questions. Come on to restitutio.org and find episode 399, part 12 of our Why Christianity class on inclusiveness, and tell us what you think. Also, just wanted to let you know about a couple of events coming up that you may want to attend in person uh, if you're able to. Uh, the first is in my own area, an event called Kingdom Fest we run each year at Living Hope Community Church right near Albany, New York, about three hours north of New York City. And that's a festive weekend. We have a full kids program. We've got food included in that. We rent out a big tent and put it over the parking lot. And uh, there are sports in the afternoon and lots of Bible teaching and Christian praise and worship music. So if you would be interested in coming to that, we'll have a number of different speakers. That is September 24th to the 26th. I'll get you more info on that once we get registration active. Uh, it won't be too much to attend, but housing is on your own. Um, there are plenty of hotels in the nearby er area that you can avail yourself of. And then the other event coming up the next month, October 15th to the 17th, is the first ever UCA conference, U Unitarian Christian Alliance conference. And uh, as plans are getting put together on that, it looks like it's going to be an awesome weekend of nerdy theology. So whereas Kingdom Fest is an event for the whole family and more geared towards practical considerations of Christ living out our faith, uh, UCA Con is more academic, more focused on the single subject of who God is and who Christ is, and, and it is more geared towards deeper theological issues with questions and answers. But there will also be plenty of time for fellowship, especially around the meals. And uh, so I encourage you to come to either one of those events, uh, the first one being in the Albany, New York area, and the second one being just north of Nashville, Tennessee, in September and then October. So uh, put that on your calendar if you'd like to come to either of those events. I will be speaking at both of them along with a number of other speakers. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do it at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.